The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, I don't wear a sweater vest. <laughs> Certainly don't look 14. So uh, it's an honor for me to be standing in for Greg, who was to be standing in for Scott. So we're praying for all those who are traveling. Those who may be sick, trust you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and it's good to see you here this morning. Would you be taking your Bibles and turning again this morning to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 2? You may recall that when I filled in back in July, we were in this passage here, and we were looking at the sins that are defined here. This morning, I want us to go back and look at the salvation that is described here for us. And it would be good if we had a way to have an audible as well as a visual way to contrast what we looked at then with what we're looking at this morning. So I'm going to call upon you to put on your thinking caps and use your memory. How many of you have trouble with memory today, these days? My memory is what I used to forget with. I heard about two elderly gentlemen who had been playing golf together for many years. And one day they were discussing the embarrassing problem of forgetting names. And one of the old men turned to the other one and said, for example, what's your name? I can't think of it to save my life. And the other man said, after he thought for a moment, how soon do you need to know? So I'm going to have to call upon you to use your memory bank this morning. But we're in Hebrews chapter 2, looking at one verse, or part of a verse, and we won't do it any injustice in doing that, but we're thinking this morning about what we just sang about. So great salvation. And you follow along on the printed page of your Bible. It'll be on the screen. I'm reading again from the King James Version. Whatever translation you have, that's fine. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says, How shall we escape? And he's speaking to, he's referring to Christians. And the word we is major emphasis. You see, you would not expect a lost person to escape the reprisal of rebellion and indifference and neglect, but he says, how shall we, Christians, escape if we are guilty of neglecting or making light of on the inside? Now, how do we do that? Well, there's a lot of ways that we can do that. The word neglect is the word that's used for making light of an invitation such as the one that we find in Luke chapter 14, the parable of the Great Supper. If we reduce it to lightness instead of taking it serious, and I'm talking about the things of God, taking the things of God lightly instead of taking them seriously. So it says here, how shall we escape if we of all people, people who have been victimized by happy grace, how in the world would we then turn around and treat lightly so great salvation? 
And the term I want to call your attention to this morning is so great salvation. Now just think for a moment with me about those three words. You see, the word salvation presupposes extreme danger. Only people who are under the pall of extreme danger need to be saved. And it presupposes an an extreme deliverance. And the extreme deliverance is as big as the danger. So already we see that this is not just casual stuff. See, God took on the problem of our lostness by his performance. And he had to match and measure the performance of what he was doing to our lostness. All right, look at the two words that are used to describe this salvation. This is incredible putting together of words. Look at the word great. The word great is such an umbrella in our society today. See, we talk about having a great day or like we, a few days ago we had a great meal. Or we talk about a great idea. We talk about a great game. That was a great game, wasn't it? For some, it was a grievous game, but we talk about a great game, or we talk about we, we took a great vacation, had a great vacation back in the summer. We talk about a great service. See, we spread the word great so thinly over everything, but God doesn't do that. When God says something is great, you may regard it as superlative, period. And the words so great here are also major emphasis. And so we we better not miss this, the word great, so great. And the definitive word is as big as the salvation word in order to let us know what God thinks about this. The Holy Spirit is the author. He is the editor of this book, the Bible. All right, look at what he adds He adds the word so, and that's in your English Bible. So don't take this for granted. This is the word that's used in John 3, 16 as the measurement word for God's love. It says there that God, what? So loved the world. Not just God loved. See, this this puts it off the map. He so loved the world. So it's a measuring word. It's an expansive word. It's it's a superlative word. God superlatively loved the world. Now that raises some massive questions. In what sense is this salvation great? Well, to answer that question and other questions with regard to this salvation, it, it would be good to do a topical study. And for obvious reasons, we we simply do not have the liberty nor the time to do that. So I want to to do a very quick topical run on this term salvation. And I I promise you, I will indeed be running. This will be very brief this morning, which lets you know that this by no means is exhaustive. Because how do you exhaust so great salvation in in a single few moments of time together? And I want to encourage you to take the back of your uh, insert there and take some notes. Just jot down some things, some scripture, so you'll have this for easy recall. How is this salvation great? 
Well, it's great, first of all, and I'm going to simply give you an outline which has three major points to it and deal only with one in our, in our remaining time, our last point, the third point together. But I do want to mention the other two points. So, so jot these down. This salvation is great, first of all. God's salvation is great, first of all, in its conception. And by that I mean before it ever arrived here on earth. Before we ever saw it, before we ever heard about it, before it was enacted or established on the stage of time in history, this salvation was great in its conception. And he deals with that, if you're looking in your Bible there, in the middle portion of verse 3 of that chapter. He says, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. So this great salvation was, first of all, purposed and planned prehistorically in the great heart of God, the great mind of God. And it was purchased and paid for by Jesus the Son. And it was protected, is protected, and it is perpetuated by the Holy Spirit. Now that's jumping over an awful lot of territory. But that's the first aspect of how this salvation is great in its conception. And then secondly, it's great in its confirmation. Look at the last part of verse 3 there in your Bible. Where it says, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So it was confirmed unto us by those who first heard Jesus and confirmed by God's own witness. Stated in verse 4, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So this salvation is great in its confirmation. And then the point that we want to consider this morning in our time this remaining is the fact that this salvation is great. God's salvation is great in its content. Now, if you were up here this morning and you were trying to get across to a listening audience, what would you say about this? How would you get this across? Well, I want to very briefly deal with the negative aspects of this salvation. And, and then deal with the positive aspects of it because they're, they're both very important. See, it, it's interesting that the gospel addresses sinners. When it addresses sinners, it, it starts like this. It starts with the word repent first. See, that, that's negative. It clears the deck for divine action. That's negative. Half of the Ten Commandments, the first half of the Ten Commandments are negative. Friends, God is so much smarter than, than we are because we say, well, don't hit me with anything negative. I don't want to hear any negative stuff. Well, friend, you set yourself in bondage if you only focus and you only go for the positive. You put yourself in bondage. Just suppose for the sake of example that I were to say to Ethan, Ethan, don't sit in that chair. Well, that's negative. See, he, he's free to do anything else. He could go on a trip, could stay at home, watch the game, go anywhere, free to do anything else. But if I tell Ethan to sit in that chair, then that's a positive command and it reduces him to one thing. That's all he can do. 
You see, the greater liberty is in the negative, far greater liberty. But you see, man is so senseless, he says, don't hit me with anything negative. And we hear this all the time. Don't give me any of that negative stuff. See, that's an encroachment on my autonomy. But it sets me free. So the content, what we're saved from. Well, the first big idea, and I'm hesitant in even mentioning this because someone's going to misunderstand, but I'm going to risk it anyway. The first thing is we're saved from God. Hello? We're saved from God. This is the first thing that we're saved from. In this very book, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that's both sides of salvation, especially a lost man. See, people say God doesn't send anybody to hell. Well, excuse me, this book right here tells us that he does. Matthew 10, 28 says that he will destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, God himself, no one else, no one volunteers to go there. No one, no one volunteers to do that on their own. But God sees to it that that happens because God and God alone enforces the moral structure of this universe in which we live. How about Matthew seven twenty three and the preceding verses? Jesus said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what's the alternative? They're not but two places. And he'll say to those people, depart from me, I never knew you, ye who work iniquity. So we're saved, first of all, from God. God hates sin. And we are totally identified with sin. And he has to transfer the way he deals with sin to us as long as we're identified with it. And friends, this is what propitiation is. Romans 3.25. God diverted his hatred for sin off us when Jesus came into the picture and Jesus took all that for us. So by grace through faith we're saved. What are we saved from? We're saved from the penalty and the punishment of sin. And this is answered in that word Identified in the word justification, which is the way we're saved. In other words, God declares us justified in and through Christ Jesus. But you have to be awfully careful because God never justifies sin. He only justifies the sinner. And he does that when and only when the sinner trusts in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Why? Because the penalty has been diverted on him. The penalty has been diverted on Jesus Christ. And it would be unjust if I trust Christ for my salvation and God not to justify me. So I get to heaven on the basis of God's rigid justice. Simply because it's been settled. As well as his mercy and grace. And everything is honored in this great salvation. All right, secondly, we're saved from the pollution, and that is the progressiveness of sin in our life. And this is called sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing, the continual process by which God begins to clear 
All of this pollution out of my life as his child, out of your life as one of his his children. And he takes away the progressive growth aspects of sin and he takes them and tackles them head on. And sometimes, yes, oftentimes, God has to get awfully rough with his children. Because many times we insist in that autonomy of holding on to these things for which Christ died to deliver us from. Which is why he says here, how shall we, of all people, how shall we as Christians escape if we neglect this great salvation? And then God is going to save us finally from the very presence or the very possibility of sin and sinning. And this is what the Bible calls glorification in heaven. And these are the negative aspects of salvation, what we're saved from. And each of those would require months upon months into years, indeed a lifetime of study, to even begin to penetrate the massive ideas that are presented to us here in and from the very word of God, the very heart of God. All right, very quickly, very briefly, let's look at the, the positive aspects of this. What am I saved for? What are you as a Christian saved for? And see, this is where most Christians, and I'm not guessing about this, and I'm not manufacturing anything here, but this is where most Christians are so happy that they're not going to hell and they're happy because they're going to heaven that it never occurs to them to ask, what is this really about? Today, right now, here, where I am in my life, what is this all about in my life? What does God expect from me seriously because he has saved me from all these adverse destructive factors? So what are we saved for? Well, let me summarize it in three quick sentences and then I'll talk a little bit about one of them. We're saved, first of all, for developing Redemptive relationships. That's one of the first things that you as a Christian, I'm as a Christian, I'm saved for. We're saved for developing redemptive relations, relationships. Matthew 22, 37 through 40 says to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as, finish it for me, yourself. So there's three prongs in this relational love. God, my neighbor, and myself. And those three, each of those is a world in itself. So we're saved to these great relationships. Right? Secondly, we're saved to the exploitation of great resources. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 21... Everything belongs to you. He says, all things are yours if, see, that's a conditional clause. All things is yours. All things are yours. Everything is yours if you belong to Christ. Everything. And friends, when you really explore that, you talk about realizing who you are and what you have eternally. Eternal resources for eternal needs and big resources for big needs. And here's one. We're saved to a big responsibility. 
See, someone has written what he calls, and I wish we had time for this, but it's what's called your serve profile. And this is what we're saved for. And this is the means by which it's to be done. If you will, somewhere there on, on a piece of paper or the back of your bulletin, if you will use that with me that just for these remaining few moments. If you'll write the word serve, S-E-R-V, in, a, in vertical fashion, S-E-R-V-E, in a vertical fashion on, on your notes there this morning. And beside each letter, I want to give you what those letters actually biblically stand for. And this is your serve profile as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. So jot these down so you'll have them and can use them. First of all, in your serve profile, beside the letter S, you have spiritual gifts. And that's the first thing to explore in your understanding of your responsibility as a Christian. See, if you don't know what your spiritual gift or your spiritual gifts are, then you cannot function properly within the body of Christ. And you do the body of Christ a great disservice. You say, well, how can I know my spiritual gift? I'll be glad to help you if you'll, if you'll let me know. I'll be glad to help you understand and find out what your spiritual gift is or spiritual gifts are. As a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift equipped when the Holy Spirit came in to dwell you. So spiritual gifts beside the S. All right, the E stands for experiences. And this is your life experiences. And this includes your privileges. It includes your opportunities. It includes your accountability and who you are in Christ and how you live, etc., etc. And this one may be as big as any, but it won't sound as big. The third letter, the letter R, stands for relational skills. And this is how God uses you as a voice for him, as a vehicle, as a vessel to contain him. And I need to add this at this point and to this point. All of your relational skills are improvable. You don't have to be content with being a Mr. or a Mrs. Shy. See, there are people who are not even what we call outgoing type of people. But you don't have to settle for that. You don't have to be content with that if that's true of you. I heard about a fellow who was so shy when he was saved, he couldn't even lead in silent prayer. See, when you turn everything over to Jesus, he's going to revolutionize your life. Every aspect of it. And he will make you an aggressive trooper in enemy territory. If you surrendered all to him. Otherwise, you're going to go on and on and on nursing yourself, wishing you could be this way or this way or you could do this or you could do that. And so we have to address our relational skills. How we relate to other people, whether they're Christians or they're lost people. How we relate to other people redemptively. And how God can change us to get that done, to do what he wants us to do. Your relational skills. 
And then number four, the letter V. That stands for your vocational skills. In other words, what aptitudes do you have as far as understanding? And how you appropriate what's at hand. How you use those things. How you learn. How you absorb. How you take in things. How you take in information. The things that you see. How you learn from all of that. And how do you use it. And all those things that go with being a vocational Christian. See, we try to be inspirational Christians. There's not a line of that in your Bible. Inspiration only lasts two or three days at the most. Being a Christian is a vocational reality. And then the last one, the letter E, the last E stands for enthusiasm. And this word, our our word enthusiasm comes from a Greek term that means to be in-godded. In-godded. And so when a person is in-godded in his or her passions, those things rise off the map for God's sake. And their enthusiasm is kindled for God's sake. And they lose all this reluctance of being wrapped up in themselves and worrying about what people think. The bottom line is, what does God think? The bottom line is what does God want? How does he feel? Where does he stand? What is his will? What does he want from me? And you're to spend your life as a vocational Christian studying those things and make an application. You see, God will always use the person who goes out on a limb... And he will put the saw in someone else's hand if that person is going out on the limb for God's sake. That's faith. Faith. So here's your principle. Jot this down. I'll I'll repeat it a couple of times. A faith that does not save you out of selfishness into service will not save you out of hell into heaven. A faith that does not save you out of selfishness into service will not save you out of hell into heaven. A faith, this is what James 2 talks about. Faith without works is dead. A faith that does not save you out of selfishness into service will not save you out of hell into heaven. Friends, as Christians, you and I, we have a serve profile. We have a spiritual, we have a biographical profile of character and conduct and conversation by which we are to live our lives as those who belong to God through Jesus Christ. How are we measuring up? I'm going to ask you, if you will, to, to bow your heads together. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing and give us an opportunity to respond as God is leading us, as he's directing us today. I hope he's doing that, don't you? I hope God's leading. I hope he's directing us. But I hope we're listening.
I hope we're listening this morning to what he's saying because he's always speaking. He's always speaking. The question is, are we listening? You may be here this morning, you never said yes to Jesus, and none of this makes any sense to you. This great salvation is not a reality in your life because you've never said yes to Jesus. We want to invite you to do that by grace through faith. To step out and come forward and make that profession of faith public. And let our church family rejoice with you and celebrate with you of what God has done in your heart and in your mind and in your life. He may have been dealing with you for some time and today that comes to a climax. If that's true of you. And you may be here this morning as a Christian and your serve profile is not as it should be, not as God wants it to be, not as God intended it to be. We want you to invite, we want to invite you to do what God places in your heart to do to set that right, to make that right with Him, between you and Him. In order that your serve profile be what He wants it to be, what you need it to be, and what those that your life come in contact with need from you to give to them. Father, today we trust you as we always do to move in our hearts and minds and lives. Father, if you don't take the initiative, we certainly won't. We don't do that. We respond in faith by what you initiate in our lives, in our hearts. Father, as you speak today, as you seek to move, to either save or to cause us to look at our serve profile, whatever it is. Father, help us to be obedient to whatever you place in our heart to do. In Jesus' name, just in his name we pray together. Amen. Ethan's going to begin and lead us as we sing. He'll invite us in just a moment to stand. I'll be down at the front. If I can pray with you, that would be a great joy for me to be able to do that. Or be able to help you discover what your spiritual gift is. And there's others here who can do that. Can help you do that and find out what your spiritual gift is. Just be obedient to whatever God places in your heart to do. The invitation is just that simple. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.